W-P-H-A-T. You're listening to the number one health and wellness podcast, the place where health and consciousness connect perfectly, perfectly healthy, healthy and tone, tone radio, radio, radio with your host, Darren McDuffie. And now prepare to get fat. What's up, peeps, and welcome back to another episode of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. I'm your show host, Darren McDuffie, alias Fat Man, because I help you become perfectly healthy and toned. This episode is being brought to you by PerfectlyHealthyAndToned.com. Make sure you go and check the site out. Today's episode is with Dr. Neil Bernard on his book, The Cheese Trap. I know as a culture, we are obsessed with cheese and milk, and you're going to discover a lot of things about these two products in this particular podcast. I myself personally have eliminated dairy, milk especially, and cheese from my diet. Being African-American, these things after a certain age, I think it was about 25 years old or so when milk really started disagreeing with me. And I thought that I had to have it in my diet, but since eliminating those things out of my diet, I've been able to get rid of a lot of the digestive distress that I was accustomed to from eating certain products like macaroni and cheese, which was heavy in my household for Sunday dinner. I don't know about you, but for me, I know that I was a staple in my house. And also just drinking milk. I know for school, chocolate milk was a must have when I was coming up in elementary. Later on in high school, those were must have. I always had to have milk with my lunch. So I encourage you to listen to this side, this episode and make your own decisions on what you are eating. That is my philosophy. If we eat something and we believe that it's good for us, it's going to be good for us from an energetic standpoint. But if we're eating things and we believe that they're not good for us, then we're going to have some type of conflict and that's where the resistance is going to come in. So it's up to you to make your own decisions. I myself, Dr. Neil Bernard is a vegetarian. I myself am not a vegetarian, but I do tend to eat a whole, a lot of things. And you'll hear that within the podcast and Every now and then I like to venture out and try different things. I'll try vegan cuisine and I'll go back to eating some stuff that I normally eat. So it's for me, it's a gamut of different things in my diet. And again, I go back to what I believe. If I believe something is not good for me, I'm not going to eat it. But if I believe that that thing is good for me, I'm going to eat it. And I never put myself in a conflicting situation with my personal beliefs. Up to you to make your own decisions with that. Now, before we get into this episode and I get into the bio, I wanted to just let you know of an episode I did previously with Wendy Myers on her book, Limitless Energy. I know Wendy just had her summit on energy and heavy metals, but I'm pretty sure you can go back and look Wendy Myers up and you might be able to get into the summit, purchase your digital copy of the summit itself, and you'll be able to go back and see what she knows about clearing out heavy metals from the body, detoxing the body of heavy metals, which is greatly needed today. Now, enough said, let's get into what you're going to learn on this particular podcast. All right, so what you're going to learn on this particular podcast, how is cheese made? A lot of times we are so used to just picking up something and eating it and we don't know where particularly such things as food where does food come from a lot of people don't know we just think that we go to the grocery store so we're going to really get in depth on how cheese is actually made what is used in the process so you will know next time when you pick up a slice of cheese where that 
thing actually comes from. Another thing that we're going to learn on this particular podcast is what role does the government play in promoting cheese? You'll find out that the government is in cahoots with other entities and I won't try to tip the boat so to speak. I'm going to let you listen to the podcast and you'll find out that. The last thing is, is something wrong with us when we no longer can digest milk because for me I always thought that something was wrong with me when I became 25 years old and the milk that I was used to drinking I could no longer drink without having all kind of digestive issues but is something wrong with us or is something wrong with the milk is something wrong with the cheese so that's what you're going to learn on this podcast now let's get into Dr. Neil Bernard's bio Neil Bernard is a physician clinical researcher author and an adjunct associate professor of medicine at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences in 1985 Dr. Bernard established the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine to promote preventative medicine conduct clinical research and advocate for higher ethical standards in research the Physicians Committee also provides direct medical care through its subsidiary Bernard Medical Center. Dr. Bernard works with patients with diabetes, obesity, and other chronic conditions in clinical research studies aiming to improve the prevention and treatment of these health problems. Dr. Neil Bernard, welcome to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. How are you tonight? I'm fine. Great to be with you. Good to have you. I read your book, The Cheese Trap, and normally what I do before I start an interview is just to ask someone how they got into health how did you get into health and how did you start exploring things about what we're talking about today which is cheese well the year before i went to medical school i had an unusual job i worked in a hospital and i was the autopsy assistant meaning that when somebody died in the hospital and we would examine the body i had to help the pathologist to see what killed the person and Food played a big role in that. And one day there was a person who died in the hospital of a massive heart attack. And the pathologist cut a big section of ribs off the chest and exposed the heart, which was filled with atherosclerotic plaque. And he diagnosed the, the, the heart disease that this person had and, and he left the room. And so I had to clean up and I put the ribs back in the chest of his body and went up to the cafeteria when I was done and they were serving ribs for lunch. And I have to say, the ribs they were serving for lunch looked like the dead body. They smelled like it. And I didn't become a vegetarian on the spot, but I was not going to eat that. And after that, I just started to associate what we eat with, with various health risks. So you are part of something that's really unique, and that is the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. How did that come about and what is the main goal for that particular organization? The, when I finished my residency, I, I went to medical school and did a residency at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. And when I finished, I was in New York and I was practicing and I, I got the idea that in medical, in, in medical practice, we, you know, we're sometimes pretty good with diagnosis and sometimes our treatment skills are okay, but we don't do anything to prevent, to prevent disease. And we really don't do much with nutrition. And I thought that needs to change. And I also was concerned with how research was conducted. I thought there was a lot of unethical research going on. And so I set up this group called the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine to have maybe 10 or 12 doctors kind of weigh in on topics of the day. But I'm happy to tell you we've grown quite a lot since that time. That was 1985. So um, that's, but those are still the things that we do. We promote healthy nutrition and also uh, promote ethical issues in, uh, in research. 
Great, great. So let's get into your book. Let's get into the cheese trap. And one of the things that came to my mind as I started reading the book is why cheese? Because cheese is a staple in the American diet. And it seems as though we raise our kids off of cheese. I can remember many times I have a nephew and I can remember many times where he was eating mac and cheese and cheese slices and all this other stuff. But why cheese? Why is cheese the centerpiece in your book? I've been doing quite a number of clinical trials, research studies, and the, pay, the, the, the participants are overweight or they have diabetes or high blood pressure, high cholesterol, whatever. So we'll use diets that don't have animal products in them. Uh, we'll use vegan diets, healthy plant-based diets. And I found that although the patients do really, really well, surprisingly often they'll say the hardest food for them to get rid of was cheese. They'll say they just crave cheese or they couldn't imagine living without cheese. And I thought, why cheese? You know, it wasn't, it wasn't ice cream, it wasn't yogurt, it wasn't milk, it was specifically cheese. And so I thought, what's the deal? So I started looking into it and I discovered three things. First is that cheese is surprisingly fattening. Secondly, it contributes to a wide range of health problems that people never associated with it. And third, it's addicting. And so I thought people need to know about this because as you said, people raise their kids on nothing but cheese. They eat huge amounts of it themselves and people need to know the truth about it. So let's get into how cheese is actually made because I found that process very, I would say entertaining. <laughs> because I didn't know half of those things. And I don't eat cheese, by the way. I just, I'm African-American, and I just had some health issues with the whole thing, digestive issues, I should say, rather with the whole thing. So I decided to kind of kick cheese to the curb. But I know a lot of people who do eat cheese, but they probably don't know, just like we don't know where our food comes from, they probably don't know how cheese is actually made. So let's get into that process. Sure, you bet. Well, it starts with milk, of course. Um, and so you the, the milk trucks arrive in the morning, and you pour it, the milk into this big uh, tank it looks sort of like a wading pool and then you have to ferment it so which gives it that kind of musty smell and taste and so to do that you need bacteria and you don't use just any bacteria between a person's toes there are bacteria called yeah. brevi, brevi bacteria b-r-e-v-i brevi bacteria and that's a genus of bacteria that if a person hasn't washed their feet in a really long time you will smell the fermentation products of brevi bacteria well when you make a munster or limburger or some other stinky cheese they don't use something like a brevi bacteria they that's exactly what they do use and it's so when people talk about stinky feet cheese it's it's not a coincidence that's why so um, that's what's added, and then you let it percolate for a while, and it ferments the cheese and makes it smell like old feet, like, like dirty feet. And then you have to make the solids sort of clump together and coagulate. And to do that, they add rennet, and it's R-E-N-N-E-T. Uh, rennet is an enzyme that is taken from the fourth stomach of a slaughtered calf. Now, many dairies, cheese factories nowadays no longer use calf-derived rennet. They'll use a genetically engineered product. That's probably more common. But either way, it coagulates the solids, and then you pour off the liquid, which is whey. The whey protein and the whey liquids are all poured off. And that created a lot of problems for cheese manufacturers because if you have to pour off all this liquid whey, you know, there's only so much space in a landfill. And it became a big problem, and they discovered if you dehydrate it, 
and you sell the whey protein powder off, bodybuilders will buy it because they, they imagine that this whey is going to make them strong and whatever. And it's, it's amazing how this cheese byproduct has been sold and, and you can sell it for more than you sell the cheese for. Not that it actually does any good, but it's been a, a very good marketing ploy from the cheese industry. And then you have to add salt. And they add a lot of salt. There's more salt in cheese than there is in potato chips. And you add it to keep the bacteria in check so they don't just keep fermenting and fermenting and fermenting. And that's that's it. Sometimes other things are added, different molds and so forth are added depending on what, like if it's blue cheese, for example. But that's the cheese making process. And it, it greatly increases the fat content. The cheese is about 70% fat compared to milk. It increases the cholesterol. It increases the protein and, and uh and salt uh, as well, but it also increases the calories. So that's it. So a couple of questions to go back on here, and one would be rennet. And there's been a lot of talk about, you mentioned that a lot of the rennet that they're using in the process is genetically modified. There's been a lot of talk about that over the years, and it's still being talked about. What are your thoughts on genetically engineered or genetically modified products? I avoid them. I. You know, uh, we are always being reassured by the industries that make them that they won't hurt us. But I, I have to say, we evolved with a certain relationship with the foods that we eat. And we're tolerant to certain ones and not so tolerant to others. Uh, but we don't want to be starting to introduce new genetic forms. And uh, I, th I really think that genetic modification has no role in the food industry. Yeah. This came up for me. It's not a question I had written down because normally I prepare for the interview. But as you were talking, this came up for me. And you mentioned that whey is a byproduct of milk and they use it to sell it, used to sell it to bodybuilders. Obviously, they think they're going to get more stronger when they use the whey. But I'm wondering if, you know, through your research, you came across anything whereas I know before people had refrigerators and things of that nature, there might have been a surplus of milk and was cheese a way to use that surplus of milk? That question just came up for me, so I thought I would ask it. Oh, yeah. No, no. cheese, cheese is, is in a way a clever thing because milk only lasts so long. You know, it, it goes bad quickly, particularly if you didn't have refrigeration. And even if you do, it doesn't last very long. So you turn it into cheese, it lasts forever, more or less. And so for people who wanted to have a source of calories that they could – store for a while cheese was you, you could imagine it being viewed as a help 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 helpful thing not helpful but helpful now of course something that's very high in cholesterol and fat is something that will keep you from starving but it's it's not healthy in any way but um but it did have that advantage my my view of you're talking about sodium and i wanted to get in and talk about saturated fat which are things that are within cheese but my view of sodium and what I've heard, and I know I'm probably not as astute as you are with regards to research and things of that nature, but they say that sodium doesn't cause high blood pressure, but it does cause, but in your book you mentioned it causing water retention. What are your views on that with the content of sodium that's in, in cheese? Yeah, well, it does both. It does raise blood pressure and it also uh, helps, keeps, it causes a person to retain water does both. So when people have high blood pressure, their doctor will say, you know, let's cut down on sodium. And what a person usually thinks about is, okay, canned foods that have salt added to them, or don't use so much salt in cooking, or don't eat salty snacks like potato chips. And they tend not to think about cheese, but let me give you some numbers. If you have two ounces of potato chips, which I guess everybody would think is pretty salty, 
two ounces of potato chips have about 330 milligrams of sodium. Two ounces of cheddar have 350. And if it's two ounces of Velveeta, it's about 800 milligrams of sodium in two ounces. So cheese is loaded with sodium. It's one of the highest, highest salt foods. Getting into the process of cheese again and going back to that where they have to use bacteria. I've also seen in your book where they use mold to create certain cheeses. With, excuse me, with what's going on with the compromising of people's immune systems because of that process of using bacteria or using mold to create these cheeses, is that in some way already compromising our immune system when we actually eat this cheese? It's, a, it's an interesting question. I, I think what it might even be the, the most important thing in this regard is the dairy protein itself. When you turn milk into cheese, you, you, you remember you get rid of the liquid, you get rid of the lactose sugar for the most part, and you're concentrating protein, so the protein content goes up. For some reason that I don't fully understand, dairy proteins trigger a variety of immune reactions in the body. And the way it would manifest is a person has sore joints and the doctor diagnoses them with rheumatoid arthritis. And then they, they, they suffer with this and they're taking ibuprofen and they're taking one prescription after another. And eventually after a year or two, they read an article on the internet or they read a book by me that says that getting away from dairy might help. And so they stop eating cheese and dairy products and suddenly their joints get back to normal. Now this doesn't happen for everybody, but it does, it does happen. And what I think is happening is somehow the dairy protein is recognized as a foreign, a foreign protein in the body. Our immune system gets on high alert. It makes antibodies to attack the dairy protein. And those antibodies end up attacking our own joints, the, the lining of the joints, causing this inflammation that persists as long as the dairy is in the diet. Now, I encourage people not to take this on faith, but just try it. If you've got an inflammatory condition like rheumatoid arthritis or Sjogren's syndrome, or if you've got psoriasis or eczema, or, or, or if, you, if you have a child with asthma, get away from dairy. Get away from it 100% and see if that condition doesn't improve or go away. And, and for some, it will not. But for a great many, it will. And it's really worth trying because it beats the heck out of taking medication for the rest of your life. Yeah, a lot of those are autoimmune. I have my own personal experience with that. It wasn't dairy. For me, it was uh, gluten. And I used to have uh, arthritis. I was actually diagnosed with arthritis in both knees. And I took gluten out of my diet. And miraculously, I don't have any arthritis anymore. But I wasn't. It was just osteoarthritis, not rheumatoid, which is autoimmune. But it's amazing how many of those things are attached to just normal foods that we eat are attached to autoimmune conditions or just general conditions that we may we may have I did food sensitivity testing I was in sales in that and I also found out there was a connection between dairy and earaches in children when children oh, had yeah. these, these earaches so it was really wild all the things I found out all the things I saw with different types of food and how the immune system can react to those those types of foods yes little kids suffer with with chronic ear infections and sometimes they get to the point of having surgically implanted tubes in their ears. Kids should not be raised with cow's milk products, ever. And if you've got a child who's got this problem, get away from the cow's milk and see if they don't do better. Now, for many parents, that will sound like heresy. You know, what are you talking about? Kids need milk. Kids need their mom's milk. They need breast milk from their mom. And once they're 12 months or whatever, I mean, some people will breastfeed for two years even. But, but once the breastfeeding stage is over, they don't need any kind of milk at all. And they never need the milk from a cow. And the fact that culturally, 
that dairying has expanded from Northern Europe and the Middle East to much of the rest of the world does not make it does not make it biologically normal. It's still the idea of drinking the milk from a cow is biologically it, it doesn't make sense, even even if it's culturally widespread. I want to get into that, but I wanted before we get into that and just talking about the cow's milk and what it's actually used for for cows. I wanted to ask you about the government because you touched on this slightly in your book about how the government actually promotes or helps promote certain products and you talked about this with cheese and how we were not a culture where we were eating a lot of cheese and then something happened. Let's talk about that a little bit more. Let me let me let me talk a little bit about how the government's role in all of this which is a little dispiriting to hear about. The government by law must promote American agricultural products. And they do some a little bit for this product or that product or the other product. But what, where they really weigh in big is with dairy. And the government held a thing called the Cheese Forum in the year 2000 to unveil some plans for promoting cheese. And as in line with this, they signed a contract with Wendy's, the, the fast food chain, to release the Wendy's Cheddar Lovers Bacon Cheese Burger. And it sold two and a quarter million pounds of cheese. The government signed contracts with Burger King, with Taco Bell, with Subway, with Pizza Hut. With Pizza Hut, they, they, they developed a product to put an entire pound of cheese on one serving of pizza. <laughs> um, you know, hold on to your coronary arteries. And anyway, so people, people might be shocked to think, wait a minute, why, why would the government promote eating more cheese? Because the government, on the one hand, says, Childhood obesity is a terrible thing. <laughs> you know, we need to tackle this. And on the other hand, the government promotes effectively food addiction or maladaptive food habits. And the answer is they do. By law, they must. And so when, when Michelle Obama was in the White House, we really tried to encourage her to translate her, I think, very sincerely held concern about childhood obesity. And, with, and she launched Let's Move. We, we really tried to encourage her to translate this into changing government policies with regard to what foods are supported, and we couldn't get anywhere. And the reason is the law says they have to. So, so the government, on the one hand, is worried about obese kids, and on the other hand, it has whole wings of the, the government promoting cheese. And, and the average American consumes 65,000 calories worth of cheese every year. So it's, it's one of the most fattening foods there is. Are we being steered wrong by the food plate? I think it's the food plate. It used to be the food pyramid, but I believe it's the food plate now. And we are given certain portions of our servings of things that we should eat on a daily basis. Are we being steered wrong if we follow that particular recommendation? And now saying what you're saying about the government, it certainly seems that way. Yeah, yeah. The, the government sets policies that are buffeted by industry interests. And you should see it. It's a, it's a funny process. Every five years, the government reworks the dietary guidelines for Americans, which determines what kids are fed in school and everywhere else. And there is a big auditorium in Washington, D.C. at the Department of Agriculture, and it's filled with people who want to tell the government what foods to promote. And there is the committee sits on the stage and there's a microphone in the front of the room. And one by one, people come up and the first person might be from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, they stand up and say how many Americans are low in iron and they need beef. 
And the next person will be from the you know dairy council, and they stand up and say, Americans eat calcium, have them you know, drink milk. And the next person is from the liquor industry, and somebody else is from the nut industry, and then it's the, the sugar association, the salt institute, and the chocolate manufacturers. And, and they, by the end of the afternoon, the, the committee is all glazed over, and they've been just pushed really hard to not say anything bad about these products. And so they've really watered down the truth. And, and the truth is that there are certain healthy foods and those are vegetables and fruits and beans and whole grains. But on the other hand, even though I grew up with meat and I suspect you might have as well, the less you eat of that, the better off you are. And same thing with dairy and eggs. And if you don't eat animal products at all, that's the healthiest. But so the, the government doesn't really want to say that because it means incurring the wrath of all these industries. But but that's the way it is. Now, having said that, the, what you're speaking of is my plate. It has gotten better. It, it doesn't have a meat group anymore. It has a protein group. And and the protein group says could be meat, but it could be tofu or it could be nuts or it could be beans or there's a lot of healthy high protein foods that come from plants. You're an advocate of a plant-based diet, which is more of a vegetarian diet. I've had a lot of people on who are more skewed towards meat eating. You mentioned animal products. Does it make a difference to you if those animal products are what we would call like a grass-fed versus commercial animal products? Or you just say, hey, no animal products at all. My grandpa raised grass-fed beef. And so did my dad, and so did my great-grandfather, and so did my cousins. We're, I grew up in Fargo, North Dakota, and nobody used the word grass-fed beef as a marketing term. In fact, it was considered a disadvantage because you were supposed to finish them at the feedlot with corn. But in the past few years, people have started talking about grass-fed beef as if it's something unusual or lean or somehow brings to mind some wonderful image of a cow enjoying life before their throat is slit. And let me tell you a couple things. First of all, it is not healthy at all. It's still loaded with fat. It's still very high in saturated fat and cholesterol. It doesn't have any fiber in it whatsoever. It doesn't have any vitamin C. It's this big load of protein and fat with the occasional parasite or bacterial contaminant in it. And despite the fact that my family raised it for generations, I want to tell you something. The, if, if you avoid that product, you're way better off. And industry finds ways to promote these things. But grass-fed beef is, you know, you can, you can say, oh, maybe it's marginally less, less fatty than corn-fed beef. The difference is not important. It, it doesn't really matter. And, and that's true for poultry and fish as well. It's, it's still, you're still eating the muscle of an animal. And it's not, it, it doesn't provide what the human body needs. Your view is a little bit different from other people that I've had on the show as well. Saturated fat. Some of them, some of people have had on said saturated fat is good. There's no harm in it. From what I'm gathering from your book and just the way you talk about cheese, you're saying that there is an issue with the saturated fat in these products. So talk about that a little bit more because I want the I don't want to be skewed one side for the audience. I want people to hear different points of view and be able to make their own decision on whether saturated fat is good for them or whether saturated fat is bad. Let me be clear. I, um, you're a good host. You welcome a lot of viewpoints and that's great. But let me be very clear about this. Anyone who comes on your show or any other show and says that saturated fat is healthy is either lying or ignorant and hasn't read the literature or has been deceived. And there are people out to trying to deceive them. And here's what I'm referring to. First of all, let's be clear about what's the truth of it. Studies have shown 
overwhelmingly that when you eat a diet high in saturated fat, your cholesterol level is going to go up. I can prove that to anybody. You can take any skeptic, bring them into my laboratory, and feed them a diet that has saturated fat. And I'm talking, when, I, when I speak of saturated fat, for people who don't know what we're talking about, saturated fat is, is the solid fat, fat that's solid at room temperature like butter or cheese or bacon grease, as opposed to a liquid oil. And you feed that to them, and within a week, their, their cholesterol levels start to go up. And the higher their cholesterol level, the higher their risk of heart disease. Saturated fat is also clearly linked to Alzheimer's disease in several studies. It's linked to a number of other health problems. The problem is this, and, and here's where the controversy comes in. Saturated fat, is, it's in dairy. Dairy is the number one source. Meat is number two. Those are multi-billion dollar industries. They have lots of money to give to research studies, and they try to make saturated fat look innocuous. And the way you do that, you can do that. You, you're the dairy industry or the meat industry. You pay some people to do a study in which you compare, say, saturated fat to coconut oil or something like that. And you, you discover it, it doesn't make much difference. They're both, uh, say, be, dairy fat versus coconut oil. They're both they have about the same effect on, on uh, cholesterol. In other words, they're both bad. Or you can show that the, the difference is not statistically significant. You run a whole bunch of these studies, and then you combine them in a meta-analysis, and you can make real effects disappear if you run your statistics in the right way. And I have to say that doctors like me have gotten very angry and very worried because heart disease is the number one killer in America and in many other countries. Alzheimer's disease is through the roof. And we have charlatans telling us that saturated fat won't hurt you. Go ahead and indulge in these things, not realizing that they are encouraging people to take tremendous risks with their families. And that's wrong. So anyway, I hope I've been clear. Yeah, that's that's very clear. And I, like I said, I just want the audience to get a different viewpoint and then they can make their decision. I don't try to make decisions for people. You mentioned well, I got to tell you, you're breaking my heart by saying that this is an alternative viewpoint or a different viewpoint, because up until about five, six years ago, everybody knew that saturated fat led to heart disease. But there's been this counter movement. And in, in, in 2008, the global dairy platform, which is a consortium of dairy producers, got together and issued documents that I can show you saying they wanted to try to, to make dairy fat look innocuous and to, to have uh, health advocates stop blaming them. And so they concocted a whole bunch of research studies and they have got people to believe that eating this product that's about as bad as Vaseline, talking about saturated fat, that is somehow not gonna hurt them. And if you put enough money behind something, you can make people believe it. The egg industry did the same thing with cholesterol, where they tried to make cholesterol look innocuous. They were dishonest and they were wrong, and luckily they didn't win. But there is a reason why people are having heart attacks, why we have colorectal cancer, why we have Alzheimer's disease, and it's not because your parents gave you bad genes. It's, uh, for the most part, because of the kinds of foods that we have learned to love. Let's talk about this because you talked about it earlier in the interview and we weren't able to touch on it more. but. Cheese is addicting. Dairy seems like it's addicting in a whole. And when I when I talk about dairy, I'm talking more about milk and, and other types of things. But cheese is addicting. Why is it addicting? I remember in your from your book, just reading it, it's, we talked about something called casomorphins. So let's talk about that and opiates in the things that we are consuming when it comes to milk and how those things add to this addicting nature of cheese. And Within that, I know this is a loaded question, but within that, how do we know if we are addicted to these things? 
Okay, uh, let's tackle that first. Yeah. Um, because some people say, well, I'm not really addicted, I just like it. And, and that may well be true. But the, the way I, it, it, by the way, and, and I don't shy away from the use of the word addiction. There are, there are some things we just like. You know, you like TV, for example. But where the word addiction really applies, I think, is number one, if you have really a craving for something or you really miss it if it's gone. Number two, is it part of your life on an, a regular basis and it, like a, even a cyclical basis? So, for example, a person who smokes uh, cigarettes, they're clearly addicted to it and it's on, it's, they crave it or they miss it when it's gone and it's on a cycle where every at certain periods you have to have your cigarette. You're not going to go 12 hours without it or, or alcohol or drugs or anything like that. Um, and the third is, are you paying a price for it? So if you're consuming food and your thighs are expanding before your very eyes and, and you're having problems with it, I think it, it's useful to think of it as addiction because that also shows you the way out. Shows you the way out. We've learned that products that are hurting us, whether it's tobacco or alcohol or drugs, when you make the decision that you're, you're addicted to it, that's a great decision to make because it tells you what to do. It tells you this is not your friend and you got to break up with it. It's a bad love affair. And you got you to gotta get it out of your life. And when people get these things out of their life completely, they do so much better than if they try to moderate it or kind of pussyfoot with it. Now, with regard to cheese, cheese is unusual. There are certain other things that can be addictive, in my view, uh, sugar, for example, or chocolate. And researchers have shown that these stimulate the release of dopamine in the brain, which is the pleasure chemical just like cocaine does or heroin. However, cheese is different because cheese, unlike sugar or chocolate, actually contains narcotic chemicals uh, in it. It's the only food that I, that I know of that, that does that. Uh, they're called casomorphins, as you mentioned. Uh, they're in the casein protein. And as the protein breaks apart in the process of digestion, it releases opiate chemicals that are not super strong. They're, they're mild opiates. The strongest of them is called morphoseptin, and it has about one-tenth the brain binding power compared with pharmacy-grade morphine. So it, it's not, not strong enough to get you arrested, but it's strong enough, it's strong enough to, mm -hmm. to um, make a person crave cheese. Something I felt very interesting that I kind of put together when I, when I was reading your book, you mentioned these opiates that are contained within milk and cheese passing over to the blood-brain barrier. And I remember going back to my experience with the food sensitivity testing and working in that environment. One of the things that I, I pulled a research study, I pulled several research studies on casein, and you mentioned casein is in cheese, casein and it's linked to autism. So when that blood-brain barrier thing came up and then the casein, it just made a connection for me personally, and I don't know if a lot of people are uh, up on that connection when it comes to this whole autism thing that we're having and a lot of I've read a lot of stuff where parents were pulling the casein cheese and dairy and things out of their child's diet and found that the child had was doing better when it came to autism I don't know if you've heard of anything like that yeah there has been a lot of effort in that direction and uh, some speculation and, and not a lot of scientific research unfortunately but I think it's an area that is very very good to look at because well, really for the reasons you mentioned, there are there have been a lot of anecdotal cases where kids do better when they get away from dairy. And, and by the way, there are other unhealthy things too. I mean, it, kids are subjected to caffeine, to colorings and flavorings and lots of sugar and all kinds of stuff that can all affect that. All of these things can affect them. 
And it's sometimes a little hard to tease out which is which uh, or which things are really causing the problem. So the best solution is just to put your kid on the cleanest diet you possibly can, which would be a healthy, low-fat vegan diet would be the best. But anyway, uh, you don't take any of this on faith. What you do is you just get away from the bad foods and you see if kids' behavior doesn't improve. And, and I'm hoping that we will do more or that we, the medical world, will do more research on this area because it can make such a difference to kids. And what we think is going on, by the way, is that the, these protein breakdown products called casomorphins go from the digestive tract into the bloodstream and then they are able to cross from the bloodstream into the cerebrospinal fluid where they can affect the brain. And it used to be unknown if this, was, if this passage was possible, but it's been clearly shown that it does happen. They, they do reach the brain. Um, so that's got a lot of folks worried about it. In nature, that wouldn't be a problem because nobody would drink milk. After the age of weaning, they would drink their mother's milk. But after the age of weaning, they wouldn't drink milk at all. Is there any milk made from an animal? Because I've come across stuff where they said goat, goat's milk is more similar to human breast milk. Is there any animal's milk that you might be an advocate of? Well, I think all animal's milks are good for the animal's offspring. So a goat milk is perfect for that goat's baby. That's it. Goat milk is sometimes, it's sort of like grass-fed beef where it sounds romantic. People imagine goat's milk cheese is going to be better than cow's milk cheese. If anything, it's slightly higher in saturated fat. So no, it really isn't any better. And, and nature did not make milk in a goat for your baby. A human baby <laughs> needs human, human milk and, and different species have different kinds of milk. So no, you don't need horse milk or rat milk or goat milk or any kind of <laughs> rat milk. Well, well, <laughs> if that sounds crazy or drinking pig milk, that sounds crazy. But is it somehow more sensible to take a goat and breastfeed your baby from a goat or a cow? The only reason it seems normal for a baby to have a glass of milk is because culturally we grew up with it. But Mother Nature still scratches her head and says, what the heck are you doing? You know what? I never knew the process of how cows ha have the milk or how we milk a cow. But it seems like, and I compared it to a human being from your book, it seems like the, they impregnate the cows over and over again so they would be able to give us this milk. And I'm just imagining this in a human, like if a woman was, we just artificially inseminate a woman over and over again just to have human breast milk. It just seems, it seems a bit unethical the way that, you know, we treat the animal. And I'm just imagining how that would happen in a human. It would be, no one would be able to, to deal with that. It's really creepy um, when you see it on a farm. What they do is that the cow is chained. She's the, the farmhand. Uh, let me just describe it in brief terms. The farmhand takes a glove and puts it all on his left arm all the way from his hand up to his shoulder. And he sticks his left hand into her rectum and, and puts his hand all the way up to about, about his elbow in her rectum because that allows him to feel the uterus through the rectal wall. So with his left hand, he stabilizes the uterus. Then with his right hand, he takes what looks like a knitting needle. It's a big, long knitting needle. And he jams it through the, her cervix and he, he injects semen that they took from a, from a bull. Now, none of these animals are volunteers and she's not going to object because she can't. She's chained, chained up. And that's the beginning of it. Nine, her pregnancy will be about nine months, similar to a human pregnancy. She's going to give birth. But then the dairy does the next creepy thing, which is they look at how beautiful it is that she's given birth. And here's her new calf. And she's licking her calf. And the calf is looking up at mom. 
at that point they come with a wheelbarrow and they say if this calf drinks your milk there's nothing for us to sell so we're taking your calf away and they pick up the calf by the chest and put the calf in a wheelbarrow and wheel them away and there's no bond in nature stronger than a mother a mother and her baby no matter what species you are and she she objects she fights she she follows the wheelbarrow and eventually a gate gets slammed in her face so, so she can't get her baby back and she'll never see the baby again. But she'll stand there and she's going to cry out all night long. And if you're near a dairy farm, you hear this. The mothers cry and the babies cry, but they never see each other. And this, and the baby will be raised in a, in a hutch uh, on milk replacer. And this is repeated every year. The cow is impregnated annually and until about f age four or so. Now, a cow normally in nature would live to be about 20, give or take. Um, but on dairy farms, they calculate that they're not getting much milk, as much milk as they want out of her for the amount of feed they have to give her. So by about age four, she's going to be killed. And then her babies are going to take her place because they're growing up at that point. And they get artificially inseminated and are separated from their babies. And then when they're about four, they're all killed. So the dairy industry is this creepy meat industry that before they kill you, they make you live for about four years on, on a cycle of being impregnated and separated from your offspring so that they can keep you reproducing and, and making milk that they're going to then take away and feed to people. So it's, it's an ugly industry. But apart from the ethical issues, there's a medical side to all of this. She's pregnant for nine months out of every 12. Pregnant animals make estrogens. Estrogens are female sex hormones that get in the milk and they're concentrated in the cheese. And although the quantity is small, if you give your seven-year-old daughter or your six-year-old son some cheese or some milk, you're feeding them on a daily basis estrogens, female sex hormones, or you're getting it yourself. And we have, even though the amounts are small, we have some evidence that they're biologically active and we're concerned about that. Yeah, I wanted to get into that just talking about hormones because we seem like we have this hormone problem, especially with a lot of women, but you're seeing it more in men and you touched on that. And you talk about this in the book as well as how it can skew the hormones, particularly in women because women are already, already have estrogen, but they become what I would call uh, estrogen dominant. Let's talk about that a little, a little bit more and how that imbalance actually happens. Yeah, and, and it happens in both men and women. There was an amazing study in Rochester, New York, where uh, men who had fertility issues were studied. And the men who ate the most cheese had lower sperm counts. They had poorer sperm morphology, poor, uh, meaning the shape of the sperm was not right, and worse motility, meaning the shape, the, the sperm didn't move right. And what the researchers speculated was that even though the, the amount of hormones in milk is pretty small, when you put it into cheese, it's more concentrated. And it may be that even though it's only a trace, that it's enough female sex hormone, estrogen, to affect a man's fertility. Even worse is in women, researchers in California looked at women who had previously been diagnosed with breast cancer. And it turned out that those women who consume the most high-fat dairy, and that's butter and cheese and whatnot, they had about a 49% higher risk of mortality compared to those women who ate less of these high-fat dairy products or ate none at all. And let me be clear about this, what the numbers mean. If a woman consumes one or more servings of high-fat dairy a day compared to less than half a serving a day, the difference in dying of your breast cancer was 49%. And again, women who have have had breast cancer and been treated for it, their whole their worry is, will the cancer come back? 
And we've known for a long time that estrogen causes cancer cells to grow. So this is, this is just an indication of not just for a person who's had cancer, but for any of us. If you're eating cheese or eating butter or eating dairy in general, you're getting hormones that came from the fact that that cow is pregnant and you're just dosing yourself with female sex hormones every single day. Oh, oh, by the way, by the way, here's here's why this is important. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have mistakenly thought it was soy, that soy has phytoestrogens. Soy does not have an estrogenic effect. That it, it doesn't cause man boobs and it doesn't cause breast cancer. And it, soy does not cause increased mortality in women who have had cancer already. It does, it's, it's a cancer preventer. But on the other hand, cheese and dairy products have actual mammalian estrogens in them. And I, we really think that's the problem. And you didn't talk about this in mail, but you touched on it in a book about dairy products and prostate cancer. And you talked about something that I've heard before as well, and that's if you live long enough as a man, you're going to get prostate cancer. Well, no, I didn't say that. That 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 was that that was kind of the the common saying. Yeah, I mean the common saying. Yeah, <laughs> but right, yeah, I've heard that yeah. myself as well. Yeah, no, everyone everyone said that when I was in medical school, I was taught that um, that if you live long enough, you get prostate cancer. And, and what they what they mean is sort of halfway true that that when men get really old, their risk of prostate cancer is higher. However, researchers started digging into this, and for the past several decades, there have been really good studies showing that prostate cancer is not evenly distributed. Milk drinkers have a lot more of it, and, and milk avoiders have a lot less of it. And the numbers are like this. At Harvard University, in the Physician's Health Study, which had about 21,000 doctors, the risk of developing prostate cancer was about 34% higher in the milk-drinking men. In another Harvard study called the Health Professionals Follow-Up Study, the risk of prostate cancer was 60% higher in the men who drank the most milk compared to those who generally avoided dairy. So it's 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 a big contributor, and we're not 100% sure why, but we think it's because milk, in the same way that milk helps a calf to grow because it has growth hormones, it has, I should really say, growth factors in it. It can make cancer cells grow too. So um, our advice is get the milk from your mother's breast when you're old enough to be weaned, that's it. You don't need milk anymore at all. Have In American society, have we just been a victim of a bad marketing scheme? Have we just been kind of bamboozled? Because as a child, I remember those Got Milk ads, and they always have an athlete. And most of us as children, we look up the athletes or look up the famous people. And even now, you see those ads coming on. So it's like we're predisposed as children from the very start to want to have milk because we want strong bones and strong teeth and all this stuff that they tell us to. And then from that milk, we get into cheese. And it just seems like it's this one cycle that we're going on, but it starts from someone really marking us that milk and cheese are things that we need. Have we just got kind of gotten hoodwinked <laughs> into believing that dairy and cheese are the things that we need in our diet? Yes, except it, it hasn't really worked very well. The, the, the marketing programs that you mentioned haven't really been super successful. Um, milk consumption has been steadily declining. And, and I have to say, I think that's a good thing overall now. Now, that doesn't mean that people should have soda instead. Um, the only beverage you physiologically need after the age of weaning is water. But, um, but yeah, I, I think that's happened. And, and government laws have, have promoted dairy as well. I mentioned some of the marketing programs, but, but picture this scenario. Let's say you're a, Let's say you're an African-American 16-year-old child or 16 or an Asian-American or a Native American. 
um, and you go through your school lunch line and they say, here's your milk. And you say, well, thank you, but I'm, I'm lactose intolerant. If I drink that milk, I'm going to be in the bathroom all afternoon. And what they mean is when they were eight or nine or 10, they discovered they could no longer drink milk. The lactose sugar in the milk makes them sick. It gives them diarrhea and cramps and gassiness and bloating. And this is not rare. It's, it's the rule. The person at the lunch line talking to the 16-year-old kid will say to them, you have to take it. By law, you must take this. This has got to be on your tray. I can't force you to drink it, but you must take it. And the, the kid will say, I can't drink that. I don't want to waste it. Just, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want it. And in, the law will specify that you have to have a doctor's note to tell you, to, to, to say you don't have to have this stuff. And my feeling is that's, I mean, I hesitate to say this is racist, but why is it that a person who has a perfectly normal condition, which is after the age of weaning, you don't need milk, and so you, you just don't digest it anymore. Lactose intolerance is not a disease. It is a totally normal condition. And for a kid to say, if I drink that now, I'll get, I'll get sick, that's a kid who's just saying, I am biologically normal. Stop giving me that stuff. But the government laws say, no, kid, go see your doctor. Or otherwise, you're going to drink this stuff. And I just think that is completely wrong. If a, if, if a school wants to serve soy milk or almond milk, they should be allowed to do that. Or the kid should just say, look, I don't want any of that stuff. Just give me a bottle of water and that'll work for me. We need to stop pushing this stuff on kids. Yeah, it just seems like the the schools follow the government because I know a lot of the lunch the lunch stuff is is made based upon government recommendations and, and things of that nature. And I remember in school, I was able to really handle milk until my 20s. And then after that, I just gave it up because that was just too many digestive issues for me. So I know exactly what you're saying. But even coming up through elementary school, middle school and high school, every day in that lunch line, I would get a little carton of chocolate milk. And you know, I know many of my colleagues did it as well, and we never question why are we still drinking milk when our bodies obviously aren't able to handle it. Yeah, but and lactose intolerance can occur at different ages. It can occur as, as early as five or six or seven, and for some, it can occur much later in life. And we've, we've been focusing on people of color because it's much more common there. Many white people have a genetic mutation that causes the enzyme, the lactase enzyme that digests sugar milk sugar. It persists longer in them, but even in many white people, you'll see lactose intolerance, particularly as the years go by. So the, the thing that's new is, is that we used to think it was a disease if you couldn't digest milk. Now we know it's a genetic mutation that allows white people to, to consume milk without symptoms for a longer period of time. Yeah, you, you, you touched on it in your book that sometimes they just carry that enzyme a little longer than, than people of a color might. Going back to Talking about this whole thing of milk and cheese, why do you think we don't question this? Because I know for a long time I wouldn't question. I just thought that, hey, you know, I mean, I should be able to eat pizza and I would just continue eating pizza. I should be able to continue drinking milk. And I thought that something was wrong with me. Why don't we as a society question these things? Is it because, again, we've been kind of brainwashed, so to speak, that milk and cheese and all these things are supposed to be good for us? Yeah, great question. Well, first of all, let me say you can have pizza. There are vegan cheeses that are okay, or, or frankly, you don't even need them. Um, you, can, you can make a bang-up great pizza where you take the crust and you put some caramelized onions on it and you put on some some hot peppers and put on a lot of nice spicy tomato sauce some olives and slice and you can make a pizza that's really 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 delicious in fact if you were in rome 
or anywhere in Italy, in any pizzeria, they will have some pizzas at least that don't have cheese at all and never did. They just, it's not part of their tradition. So you can still have pizza. But yes, it's a normal thing when you see ads on TV for milk and, and you might see other people drinking it or ads for cheese and you see the products everywhere and you taste them and they're kind of seductive. It's perfectly normal to think, well, this is part of my my culture. And a generation ago, it was the same with cigarettes. My dad smoked and I thought it was a perfectly normal thing. And then, uh, and then science comes in and says, wait a minute, smoking is actually not such a good idea. And now it's a generation later and we're saying, wait a minute, maybe there are some other things apart from tobacco that are, that are harmful for us too. You mentioned vegan cheeses. And one of the things that I run up against when I'm speaking with people is that, oh, you know, it doesn't taste just like the real thing. And I, I use that when I want to have some cheese. Sometimes I was like, okay, I want to taste a little bit of cheese flavor on something. I'll use a vegan cheese or a cheese substitute. And a lot of times with people who are so used to having what I would call regular cheese, then they're not really receptive to trying a vegan cheese. What are some of your recommendations with cheese and also with milk? There's a lot of alternatives out here for almond milk and, and different things. What would you recommend for those people? Yeah, it's amazing to see what's happened with the non-dairy milks. All, you, know, you look at the dairy case. The dairy case used to have dairy in it. Now it's like almond milk all over the place and oat milk and hemp milk and soy milk and rice milk and every kind. And I encourage people to pick them up and try them because unlike the cow's milk, there's there's no estrogen in the almond milk. You know, you didn't have to impregnate the almonds, so there's no cholesterol in it. Um, it's it's a much better product for you and you're digest digestively, it's going to be better for you too. So give them a try. With regard to the vegan cheeses, I kind of think of them as a transition food because even though there's no cholesterol and there's no estrogen in them and the fat quality is going to be better than cow's milk cheese, they're still pretty fatty and still pretty high in cholesterol. So I think of them as kind of a special occasion food rather than an everyday kind of food. But, but they're cool. Kite with cow's milk, they start with almond milk. There's a million of them. And give them a try, but but I, I would not have them be a regular part of your diet. They're more of a party food, something like that. Yeah, something you just enjoy very occasionally. That's all the questions I have for you, Dr. Bernard. It has been real, and I really enjoyed your book. And it, uh, I was not an advocate of dairy or cheese before I read your book, so it, it didn't sway. It, I mean, it didn't sway me either way. I kind of already knew, and I just listened to my body intuitively and really got away from those things years ago. But I know there's people out there who are still looking for keys to why they may not be losing weight or why they may have certain allergies and i would recommend the cheese trap to them to just do a little bit more research and try pulling these things out of their diet which might help yeah it, it could make a big difference and i encourage people not not to give up their skepticism and they've been listening to this broadcast and they're wondering is what i'm saying true and let me encourage them to to have a look for themselves read the cheese trap if they can if they can get it out of the library have a look try the recipes as well and just see if getting away from dairy doesn't improve their health. And I wish them uh, very good luck in doing that. Yeah, and you, we were talking about this offline here before we got started with the interview. You mentioned a very famous restaurant here in Fort Lauderdale, which I've gone to as well. Um, and it's Sublime. Really good food there. So if you're in the Fort Lauderdale area, visit Sublime. You won't be disappointed. I've been there several times, and I've really enjoyed the food. They do such a great job. And if, and if somebody walks in as a meat eater and they see all the fabulous foods that they can have that, that are vegan, they will walk out just so convinced that this is the way to go. 
yeah, I'm a meat eater, but I went in there and I was very skeptical. And some of the things that they were serving in there were were really good. So I found that really surprising that you would mention a restaurant that's probably like 15 or 20 minutes away from where I live. And I've, I've been there on a couple occasions. All right. Well, go by there tonight and say hi to Nancy, Nancy Alexander, <laughs> the, the owner. She would she would love to see you. Tell, tell her I sent you. All right. Thank you, Dr. Bernard. It's been real. And again, thank you for your time. I know you're busy, but uh, thanks. Nice to, nice to speak with you this morning. Thank you so much. All right. Have a great day. You too.